0: Welcome to the final episode of the Women on the Move podcast for 2021. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. Today, I'm joined by my good friend, Megan Cunningham, the CEO of Magnet Media, our podcast production partner. We discuss Megan's journey as a female founder, the impact of COVID-19 on the business, and the power of mentorship, all while talking about some of the wonderful lessons that we've learned from all of our guests this year. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Megan, thank you so much for joining us at the front of the mic for the Women on the Move podcast. It is great to speak with you. Sam, thank you
1: so much. It's really an honor to be here with you today.
0: So I say front of the mic because you and your wonderful team at Magnet Media have produced this podcast for us. So you've been very involved from the beginning, really throughout all the production elements. So I just want to say thank you to you and the entire team for being just terrific partners.
1: Yeah, well, I'm really grateful, certainly for the partnership, but for you and for the team on the Chase side as well. Lucy and Allison and everyone in your, on your team has been so critical to our success, I think, collectively here. So we're all just so thrilled at the success of the podcast.
0: This has definitely been a labor of love, I think, for us and something that's been a long time in the works. And just want to tell our audience, so you and I have gone back probably five or so years now, as we were trying to think about that, when I worked in another part of the business at JPMorgan Chase, and we were doing things unrelated to Women on the Move. So it's really nice to just think about our professional relationship and personal relationship over so many years and being able to do this together, which is just really thrilling.
1: Absolutely. I don't think I had any sort of preconceived notion when we first had our lunch meeting (laughs) to discuss your new role in taking on Women on the Move as to where this could go. But I just, I was almost shaking. I remember going to the bathroom in the middle of lunch and being like, Sam Saperstein is going to be charged Women on the Move. And it was just, you know, it was like sort of this like hidden part of the bank's culture at the time before you took over. I think that what was so exciting was that you had the backing of the operating committee and the leadership team and look at how far it's come. It's pretty thrilling. So congratulations.
0: Thank you. It is. It's a privilege really to do this kind of work, but just also something that is so motivating. So let's talk about your company and being a founder of your own company. These are the stories I love hearing. Everyone has a unique approach and motivation and how they built their companies. And so let's talk about yours. Let's talk about Magnet. And I'd love for you to tell us, how did you come to want to launch it? You know, what were the origins? And then we'll talk a little bit about what has it meant most recently? during the pandemic. But start us off with the story of its beginning.
1: The story of its beginning is a very humble one. I was originally on a track of being a documentary film producer and had done some sort of guerrilla activist films in college and was very active in actually my very first project. I was just connecting with my mentor from, <laughs> from my college days was a feminist video project called Women Out Loud. And it was distributed on VHS from our college campus (laughs) to other women's centers around the college community. And it ended up winning this like student Emmy award. It was kind of a crazy scenario that put me on track of like, oh, this doesn't have to be like a, you know, sort of passion project. This might be a career opportunity. And it was super low budget and, you know, very sweet, you know, sort of ambitions at the time. But I think that what I realized was that that was sort of how I wanted to show up and what the career that I wanted to take was telling stories that matter. And that's still our mission to this day is telling stories that matter so that we live in a more empathetic world. Magnet's origins were certainly an idea before its time. I had left my documentary career path in, you know, these amazing opportunities. And yet I really struggled in a large corporate environment to be motivated every day. And I say that looking back because now I'm not as ashamed as I was at the time. (laughs) At the time, I thought, what's wrong with me? You know, this is something that everyone else around me is, you know, feeling as fortunate as I was when I first got this job offer, but it just wasn't a fit for me and my personality. And and so I had to be really reflective. And I went out to lunch with one of my mentors at the time who was many decades (laughs) more senior than me. And he said, you know, Megan, he's like, you're really smart and hardworking and creative. And I was like, oh, finally, I'm being seen. And at the time I was like, wow, great. Thank you for recognizing. And and he goes, however, you're in an environment where everyone is those things. Everyone is smart. Everyone is hardworking. Everyone is creative. And the thing that really makes you unique is that you're good at computers, which at the time in the 90s was like, you know, that's the equivalent of tech and data today. Right. So, you know, my head exploded. I was like, I came from a liberal arts background. My mom was an English teacher. Like, what do you mean? I'm like good at computers. Am I going to be like plugging in monitors for the rest of my life? (laughs) This is really a track that I didn't anticipate. But I took a cue from that conversation and left the production world temporarily to join as employee number two, a startup before there was really a startup scene in New York. And this is, again, the late 90s. I was lucky enough to get an opportunity to work on the ground floor, which is what the classified ad advertised. And I walked in and there was this big empty office and a founder and a receptionist. And I thought, okay, we could actually build something here. And my friends at the time who were like in grad school and like, again, on the corporate track came over for lunch and we would meet and they would walk in and they, you know, had heard all my excitement about this company. You know, they'd be very quiet as they walked through like the halls of these empty office. And then we go out to lunch and they're like, is this a real company that you're at? <laughs> there was no such thing as a startup at that time. You know, It wasn't like a really pop culture term, and nor was there like an ecosystem that supported it on the East Coast, at least, right? There was definitely stuff happening in Silicon Valley. Fast forward the clock, that was a a massive success story. And I was very fortunate to have, we had generated $20 million in two and a half years. And I had 40, 50 people reporting to me. And I thought, wow, this is like an addiction. And how could I bring this to my passion, which was, you know, still on the storytelling side. And so I kicked around some ideas and Magnet Media was born with the same, again, initial mission that we had today, but certainly a much different business model.
0: I love this. There's so many things to what you said. You know, first of all, understanding what you wanted to do with a career and making sure that what you love doing could be that career and look at how fortunate and just amazing you've been at making that happen. But then also taking that feedback, which I'm sure was not easy to hear that, you know what, there's a lot of people like you too, but you do have this extra thing about you and making sure that was motivating and really taking that away and knowing that the culture you were in, you knew it wasn't going to be right for you over the long term. I think that's so hard for people to accept and then do something with. I think a lot of people maybe in large companies or just companies where it's not a great fit, just keep going because they feel like they have to, or they're not sure, or don't want to take a risk to leave that. So I'm so glad you did.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah. You know, really, it had to just do with the pace more than anything else. In those environments, again, they make unbelievably gorgeous work, you know, multi-million dollar projects, much different than the work we do at Magnet. However, it was, you know, years to get something from a concept to on screen. And to be totally frank, it was really, at the time, a very homogenous leadership that was making these decisions. If you didn't have an Ivy League degree, you were not getting, a, you know, sort of promoted in an environment at that time. And so I thought that, you know, while, I certainly had a lot of the qualities, I think, that I could have like fake it till you make it kind of thing in terms of that environment. I wasn't interested in that. And I, I didn't want to put my energy towards that. And I think that there's no judgments that I'm, in my story here towards people who do because I loved a lot of the work. and I still love a lot of the work that comes out of large companies and traditional media is beautiful and inspiring. But I think Magnet's aspiration is to really look at the storytelling qualities, the craftsmanship that is put into that type of storytelling and apply that to brand storytelling. And because, in my view, that's where everything is headed.
0: So let's go deeper on this because the state of the story is something that you talk about all the time. You talk about it with your clients, you talk about it just with your, your public audience. I know it runs to the core of Magnet. So what do you mean by that? And what do you think storytelling in today's day and age with so many media outlets has to do to be effective?
1: I think that specifically when it comes to brands, I think there is a different bar in telling your story. And really that is a transition moment and may not always be the case, but I know for a fact, right? We use data and storytelling to drive business results. That's our our value proposition. And I can tell you that data shows that brands are given a heavier lift when it comes to producing and publishing and gaining audience behind their story. Because there is this legacy thought around like, oh, that's probably just an advertisement. And advertising in its traditional fashion is blocked, skipped, avoided, (laughs) right? So in many ways, this sort of heralded way in which brands were showing up, right? Back to the romantic years of of Don Draper, (laughs) you know, the origins of advertising has a sheen to it, the original ideas around advertising, the original environment around advertising. And yet due to a lot of digital transformation, technology evolution, I think that because of all those things, storytelling is in many ways disrupting advertising. And so as money is moving from advertising, block, skipped, avoided, to storytelling, which is searched for and shared, there's a discipline required to tell that story when you're at a brand. And I think that a lot of CMOs are Now coming to us, right? We've been at this for 20 years, so we've gained a lot of insights, made a ton of mistakes along the way, but fortunately, still on that path and really growing at this point. You know, the moment that we have here, I think, is a window in time, and it's really to craft what the storytelling discipline looks like from a business perspective, right? How do you do this strategically? How do you show up as a brand and tell a meaningful story that resonates with your audience? And by audience, I I put in parentheses audiences because most brands do have multiple audiences. They have current employees, they have future employees, they have investors, (laughs) they have customers, right? And so all these different facets to a brand story need to be intentionally thought through and strategically created and distributed. And that is the business that we are in.
0: I love how you describe it as being scientific with the data. It's not just about the creativity, although that's important. And I'm sure great ideas still win the day. But it has to be rooted in something, in some insight that comes from the market, the product, whatever it is your customer needs. Is there an example of, let's say, a client you're working with where you did all of that end-to-end, thinking about the data, generating the insights, and then telling the story? When What did
1: that look like? I'll give you two quick examples one is definitive healthcare which actually was a client of ours but also a client of J.P. Morgan's <laughs> in this world of small worlds and we were invited into the conversation due to our relationship actually with the bank and they were considering how they tell their story for a initial public offering so this is a fast growing startup that had been very scrappy with their marketing historically the cmo will tell you that that he had to negotiate with the founder before he even took the job he had understood what it would take to to make a big brand around this and he negotiated like a two or three year time window for rebranding and of course six months into his job the founder says you know what we're gonna go public in six months <laughs> so- Let's turn up the volume here and and increase the pace. And, And again, getting back to my own personal story, I think you will find that as a common phenomenon as a late stage startup. You see marketing leaders who are recruited traditionally from enterprises because they're now looking to, the startup's looking to upgrade and the enterprise leader is looking to get a piece of the action. So Justin's story at Definitive was not unique to us. We have seen this movie before, but as he joined, he was thinking through, okay, we really need a storytelling partner. And, you know, he had a lot of options to choose from because they were a great company and we got selected. And what we did for Definitive Healthcare was we looked through all the elements that they had already just created around their brand positioning, around their nuggets of narrative. And we thought, what is the best way to execute on this? right? And so what's interesting about the IPO roadshow moment is that it's potentially the highest stakes filmmaking (laughs) you can ever imagine. right? You are going to take a a company that might be doing $100, $200 million of annual revenue and you're going to go public and it will be valued at billions if you do a good job. (laughs) So it's a very, very high high-stakes high, high stakes environment, and we had a, a compressed timeline to produce it in. But I think that, again, because we have been highly focused on my team at telling stories specifically for tech, finance, and health and wellness brands, those are our sort of three domain areas, we jumped in, looked at some of the strategy that they had already created, brought in some of our own new insights, and developed a plan through which we could create animation around their product, documentary from the voices of their executive team, and from their customer stories. And those were the three sources of storytelling. And we wove it into a sort of chapterized 35-minute film that was shared with investors ahead of their IPO. And it was one of the top IPOs of 2021. I'm I'm so proud of that team. I
0: think it's remarkable that companies are now doing this long-form type of media to tell their story. I mean, that seems really different from... 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago when a roadshow was just a much more corporate leaning exercise.
1: You know, what's interesting is I won't go down a whole rabbit hole of this, but it really has to do with the fact that investing has been democratized. It's now something that other people can get involved in. But in order to do that from a startup perspective, you have to be able to scale your story. And so that's what we found was the case. And it's now kind of table stakes for companies that are IPOing to make these films, which is really exciting. I would say, if you don't mind, I would love to share with you actually two quick more stories of a collaboration that we did with the Chase Mortgage team, just because I, I wanted to note that because I thought it was a particular insight. And we had been talking to them for a long time about whether there was a story to be told. I mean, it's an unusual time, obviously, for home buying and also, I think, a difficult subject to make interesting, right? The process of home buying, most people don't look forward to. What was fascinating about that example was that we arrived collectively in conversation with a bunch of the people at the bank that were, incredibly open to an innovative story format. And largely because of the success that you pioneered with Women on the Move, they said, what if we did a podcast? And so they had this amazing idea that we could bring in people from HGTV and, and other sort of influencers that the bank was already supporting, Ryan Surhan and the Property Brothers. And really create our own narrative that was called beginner to buyer. So this is reaching first-time homebuyers with a really entertaining sequence of stories around the steps that it takes to buy a home. And the insight there was that first-time home buyers very much struggle with the process and are kind of in an analysis paralysis loop sometimes because of the lack of information. So how can we make this information available and entertaining? And we brought in some celebs and informed speakers to do that.
0: So let's switch gears and talk about the last two years almost now. How did Magnet fare during the pandemic? What changed for you in terms of the workforce or the way you did your work?
1: I mean, it was a roller coaster, to be sure. And I will just say, before I say anything else, that we were extremely privileged and very, very fortunate. And I'll give away the ending of the story, which is that we are, again, growing at at a record pace. And it's very much due to the loyalty, dedication, and blood, sweat, and tears of the team. But I will say that as a leader, I think it was easily one of the hardest moments in my 20 years of, of running this company. And that's you know saying a lot, right? I've been in a scenario where we had to evacuate our offices at 9-11. I have been in a scenario where people were freezing their payments to us during the mortgage crisis, right? So there's a lot of crazy moments in being a startup over the last 20 years in New York City. However, this was by far and away the most difficult part because it affected everybody. It affected everyone personally and it affected everyone's family and their friends, and their loved ones, And I I think it continues to, let's be honest, the pandemic is, is not behind us, sadly, we're still in it. So as far as our journey was concerned, I mean, I really focused early on, on thinking through how do we leverage what we do best in this environment? And most importantly, starting with our people, how do we take care of our people and set them up for success? because that is, I think, a real privilege of being the size that we are, right? We're not tens of thousands of people and I can actually talk to our whole team on a single AMA call, right? <laughs> Ask me anything. And so let's leverage that. Let's not feel like, oh, we're this tiny company. We're gonna you know, be out of business in a couple of months. Let's like lean into the fact that we are an intimate group and we can get on a, a, you know, a call it and put our heads together as far as what it's gonna take to ride these rocky waves ahead. And I was really candid with everyone around, you know, the the picture that we were facing, which was a lot of uncertainty and shared with them at the same time what we know and what we don't know. And I think what we knew was that, you know, there were certain annual contracts, there were certain ongoing engagements with companies that were our clients and those were predictable and they were going to keep us on a steady path and they were going to keep our lights on and we were grateful for them. And then we also didn't know about the new business funnel and whether people would just be freezing funds indefinitely, things that we had, you know, Know, historically been able to predict of new opportunities coming in and closing, we didn't know what that pipeline was going to look like and what the closing rates would be and all those sort of moments of uncertainty in a, in a business that had been formerly pretty predictable. And so I put the challenge out to everyone <laughs> around, you know, gathering as much data as possible, talking to customers firsthand, having honest conversations with what their plans were, when we could expect some more certainty and clarity and how we were going to navigate this together, everyone was heads down. Despite the challenges of you know not having an IT person in your home office <laughs> and trying to produce global projects when there was COVID breaking out all over the world and you know all the struggles associated with that, I think they navigated it so incredibly well, and it's the reason why we succeeded.
0: Well, I know you were able to do some work remotely because we've now done our podcast online for the last you know year and a half. When we had started it, what were you able to pivot like that? And what still needed to be done in person?
1: We were fortunate that we have always been a global company with the majority of our staff in New York City. And so we did have a lot of tools and strategies already baked, like, for example, a remote shooting playbook. And when a new client like Chief, our friends, Lindsay and Carolyn, who are running a fast-growing startup, needed to rally and, and tell the story of, of their growth, we were able to, within 48 hours, like develop this custom playbook that had come from our archive and just update it for their needs and say, OK, here's what the brand guidelines look like. Here's how you're going to shoot at home. Here's the, you know, the camera angles, the lighting, et cetera. So they could distribute something that was really a self-filming project. Normally, we would have had to do that over weeks and months, but because we had been in this space before shooting remotely, we were able to pivot within hours and days.
0: Yes, I do recall becoming my own videographer over the last year and a half. So I'm not proud of that, but it worked. So there were so many women we've had on this program over the last year who addressed some of these issues too, whether that was from their perspective as small business owners, founders, or people just working in the market. And I just wanted to talk about some of them because as we think about the past year and the messages and the learnings from them, you know, it's really inspiring what they left behind. So we had spoken to so many, really just too many to name each one, but here's just a few that really come to mind as I think really memorable. So we spoke to Katika Roy, she's the CEO and founder of Pipeline Equity, and this is a company really looking to take out the bias inherent in people processes and help companies try to understand the bias in hiring and in promotions, retention, and decisions really along the HR process and pipeline, if you will. And she really talked about the fact that we need to understand the impact on women when it comes to what the pandemic is doing. And I think we can listen to her and hear her words as to what she saw out there in the market.
2: We assume that remote work is flexible, which is not necessarily true. And we've assumed that flexible work gives women more opportunity, which has not panned out during the pandemic. What we saw was that women's unpaid labor increased by 153% during the pandemic. That 32 years setback in labor force participation is actually critically important to our economy. This is not only an issue of fairness for women, but women have actually added $2 trillion to the US economy since 1970, through increasing their labor force participation. And pre-COVID, there was another $789 billion on the table for us in increasing the US GDP through increasing women's labor force participation. We've lost all of that opportunity, plus over a trillion dollars of economic gain since 1970, because we went back to 1988 levels. Mm -hmm. And then we also lost 22
1: years on the gender pay gap. You know, a lot's been written. (laughs) on the she session, so to speak, right, of 2020 and how deeply disturbing it is that women have been inordinately affected and impacted by this period, by the pandemic and continue to be. And I think that, you know, the difference between the rise in women's and men's unemployment in 2020 was the first year since like 1948, I believe, that women, you know, it shot up. Women had been entering the workforce and, and not leaving and being, you know, sort of, elevated, but it was happening. And then there was this whole major setback. And I think that, you know, that's something that has not gone away. We need to fix it immediately. It's super urgent. And I think as leaders, it's upon all of us to look in the mirror and see what we can be doing to better support the women on our team, to recruit more women, to create policies that are favorable to attracting female candidates and to really supporting them as the company grows. That's definitely top of mind for me as it is for people of color on our team. I mean, we really, I think this diverse equity, and inclusion conversation is critical and urgent, and it's not going away.
0: So one of our guests who is doing unbelievable work is Fatima Ghost Graves. She's the president and CEO of the National Women's Law Center. And if anyone wants data on what exactly is going on with women in the economy and in so many other sectors, the National Women's Law Center is a wonderful source. So I will definitely plug them right here. And Fatima talked about the impact of COVID on women and their families, And how obviously, you know, so much of the childcare burden came onto women and really drew them out of the workforce out of necessity. And so let's listen to what she talked about in terms of the importance of focusing on families. We knew
2: that women were the vast majority of essential workers. It's also true that women experienced the greatest unemployment. And some of that was because they are concentrated in the sectors that were hardest hit. In this pandemic, they make the majority of hospitality and leisure, for example, the majority of domestic workers, many of whom were laid off at the front of the pandemic with no notice and no support. But also part of the reason women were leaving the workforce was because our care infrastructure crumbled this year. Totally.
1: The American Rescue Plan and the work that Fatima is doing really fomenting government support and moving forward, I think that's critical. As a business leader, I'm in daily discussion with other leaders. Magnet has signed and supported a lot of the you know, petitions that are, are being put in front of politicians to ensure that, that these important policies get passed.
0: You know, and you're also making me think of another entrepreneur we've had, Rebecca Minkoff. We had her recently at our leadership day, and then we had her on the podcast. And you look at someone like Rebecca, I think with just a well-known brand and from the surface of it looks very successful, but she really talked about the need in the pandemic to streamline the business, to, to cut the number of products back and the risks she had to take. And I really loved her reminder to take those risks, because if you don't, you'll never get anywhere and there's really no loss. even if you fail?
1: Every time you take a risk, if you fail, you learn something, right? You can all come away with a learning. And if you don't fail, then you also achieve something you didn't think you can do. And so I choose to look at taking risks as always positive. And I think that sometimes we wait for something to happen to us. And I like to tell women the cavalry is not coming for us. We have to stick our own necks out to get what we want. And guess what? It's not going to be comfortable. And I think. Get comfortable with the discomfort because if you look at our history as women, what we've had to do just to vote, to get a credit card, to sign our own mortgages, right? People had to stick their neck out and be placed in uncomfortable scenarios. I relate so much to everything that Rebecca has shared. <laughs> I think that she's definitely a portrait of a vulnerable leader and we've had her speak to our team and our community as well. And And she's a friend and I admire her so much. So
0: I do want to end on this topic of sisterhood, which we talk a lot about at JPMorgan Chase, women helping other women. And I know, Megan, that you personally take this to heart. I know you're so involved in women as founders elsewhere. You had mentioned Chief, which is a community for women, was really helpful to Chief from the start of their business and their growth. And so tell me about the ways you really like to help women in your day to day, whether that's you know with their businesses or their personal lives or careers in general. What does that look like to you?
1: It's interesting because I think there used to be two constituents on that list. And during the the pandemic, <laughs> to tie it all back together, there's a third that's potentially the most important. But the first group of women that I was honored and, and privileged to mentor and support was really female filmmakers. So many directors, it's been written about extensively. The Hollywood scene in general is so homogenous and so male-driven from studio executives to you know women behind the camera. And so that was really the first place that I started to give back was to say, listen, this doesn't have to be this way. There's so many incredible, talented female filmmakers, female cinematographers, female producers. We just need to be more gender balanced. And I think that, you know, that was a very vocal topic (laughs) at Magnet and something that we held ourselves accountable to over the years. And we've just gotten sharper about our metrics and measurement over the years, over the last two years, especially doubled down on tracking how many female crew members, how many people of color, how many people with diverse abilities. I mean, really looking through the hundreds of people that we employ over the course of a single year and ensuring that we are holding ourselves to a standard that is beyond just sort of a qualitative sense of of diversity, but it's quantitative. The second is really around female founders. And again, that's more just frankly therapy for me, largely because I want women who come after me to not make the mistakes that I've made every year for 20 years. And, and every year at Magnet, there's some mistake I make, of course, right? That's that we're continuously learning, continuously improving, hopefully. You know, some lessons are harder to learn than others. And I think that if we can avoid those that come after us can avoid um, the mistakes that I've made, I would love that. That would be a great legacy for me to have left. And then the third is really our own team team. And that is something that, again, I feel like I sort of took for granted or maybe my team took for granted when we were small. It was easy to be kind of informally mentoring people at at the company. As we grew, I recognized that that was something that had sort of fallen apart. And in the pandemic, it was really next to impossible to maintain time, set aside time, quality time to mentor women on our team. And that's not just the junior people on our team, but really women at every stage, right? Rising directors and VPs, people that have aspirations to be entrepreneurs themselves or to be in the C-suite. So that's something that, you know, I'm taking note of as we start to reopen and do more in terms of, you know, face-to-face meetups, which not everyone is comfortable with. And certainly, you know, there is going to be a virtual component to our work and to, I think, most work moving forward. But as we, you know, think through the future really committing to intentionally mentoring and making time for women on my team is something that is my 2022 commitment.
0: You're hitting on something that is so top of mind for me, which is in this new world of hybrid work where some people won't be in the office every day, how do we make sure that women and people of color still get the sponsorship, and the mentoring that they really need. They haven't gotten it to date in the way that they need to. And so my fear is if they are not in the office as much, you know, what's going to happen there? So I would just say that as we think about flexibility, and I'm all for flexibility when it comes to work, I really want people to have as part of that flexibility, time in the office with people, time to build relationships, time to be in front of people. It's just a different way of building relationships that you just can't get remotely.
1: I couldn't agree more. And I think that, again, we've always had sort of bi-coastal or international team members who have you know, worked with us either on a project or even full-time from, you know, at different moments in the in the company's history. And at the time, inclusivity was not something that was topical. It wasn't something that was a priority for me. It was it was something that I sort of took for granted of like, oh yeah, they'll be joining the sales meeting or the production meeting, you know, whatever. And I've realized over time that if you're not intentional, if you're not vocal about including remote work employees, especially as you start to gather, that they will be left out, that they will be forgotten, that they'll, oh, did someone remember to dial in or are we doing Wi-Fi or, you know, all of that it's just terrible. And it can be so easy to be inclusive. And if you start really flexing that muscle, you know, we're doing a hybrid event, really double down on that inclusivity, right? There's some people that cannot join us in person. Let's make a a plan so that they can be part of the dinner. So we're having an IRL dinner with a remote audience and it is a big experiment and I hope it works and fingers crossed. 2022 is almost here, and we're thinking about the season of Women on the Move and dream guest list. Who's on your list?
0: The first guest I would love to have on, and really this is someone who's been on our radar for many years, is author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And she is just so powerful in the way she talks about feminism, her feminist manifesto, which, by the way, is something I've shared with my colleagues, and really just having her on to talk about this moment in time, post this pandemic, what it is that we really need to do on behalf of women and girls and women of color around the world. I think she'd make such a strong advocate for those causes. I'd really love to hear from her directly.
1: That would be an amazing episode. What would be the headline for that episode?
0: 2022's Feminist Manifesto and What We Must Do Now.
1: Spot on. I'd love to hear that manifesto.
0: (laughs) Who's on your list?
1: I think I have some unexpected women, uh, hopefully, but hopefully those that want to be on it. So my first is Hitha Palapu, who I don't know if you have ever crossed paths, but she is a mover and shaker. She's an entrepreneur, an investor, and an author. And her latest book, We're Speaking, features an insider look at Kamala Harris's rise and really just has both memoir component to it and sort of tactical, actionable insights that I found really, really refreshing.
0: Well, here's another recent author, but businesswoman that I would love to have on. And it's Indra Nooyi, the former CEO of Pepsi. And Indra is out there on the book circuit right now. And what she talks about in terms of her background, building a team, being a woman in the role and an immigrant in her role and having to really live up to so many expectations, but doing it on her own terms, I think is remarkable. She is amazing here. She has been just a role model for me for so many years. And I'm so glad she continues to live her legacy with her new book.
1: What a great suggestion. I also love the idea of Jackie Glover, who has had an incredible career at HBO, championing independent voices in the documentary division for decades, and has recently joined Disney ABC News. It's sort of a new hybrid role in this long-form documentary position, different from the news division. She's been tasked at Disney with finding Black voices and Black directors and really elevating their stories. I mean, the work that she's done historically has just been so... So over the top inspiring that I'd love to hear sort of how she's tackling this next chapter.
0: I'm really not surprised to hear that because you love a good storyteller. So that is a perfect person for you. Here's another storyteller that I would love to talk to on the podcast. And it's Zoe Saldana, the actress and entrepreneur Zoe created a platform called BSA, and this is really a platform to tell the story of Latino and Latinas in the media, but also in their lived experiences. And she's really trying to push a much more authentic storytelling on behalf of that community. I would love to talk with her about how the platform's going and what she did throughout the pandemic to make sure she could continue to provide these stories at a critical time.
1: That would be amazing. I'd love to hear her story too. And I'll just round us out with a business leader. Adina Friedman specifically around the groundbreaking board diversity proposal which has really been you know something that she championed against all odds from my perspective I did not see this as something that would be taken up but that move has potentially reshaped corporate america for generations to come and I'm so thrilled with what advocacy that she provided and the breakthrough opportunities that women now have to be on boards as legally required if you're public on Nasdaq
0: she's really used that platform at NASDAQ to drive substantial change and hopefully others will too. And it'd be great just to hear her thought process behind that and why she thought it was important to take on at this moment in time.
1: Amazing. Well, let's go get them for the (laughs) next season of Women on the Move. So I will leave our podcast with
0: this thought, which is just, you are an amazing partner as such an influence on me. It's just terrific to work with you and your whole team. And so thank you for everything you do for us and for women in general.
1: Oh, well, Sam, I am so grateful for the fact that we met and for all of your continued dedication to this partnership and to this podcast. And I get notes all the time, so I can only imagine that the feedback that you get just around the power and impact that the podcast has had on so many women. And thank you for that. It's truly amazing. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you to Megan for joining me on this podcast and for her wonderful partnership with Women on the Move. She was a perfect guest to help me close out the year, and I loved looking back with her and doing some goal setting for 2022. We covered so much this year on topics like financial health, entrepreneurship, flexibility, and caregiving. I'm so grateful to the women and the small handful of men who joined us this year and shared their experiences. I'm inspired by all of them, And I look forward to bringing you more stories in the new year. I want to end with a big thank you to you, our audience, for joining us each week. We love having you in the Women on the Move community. And we hope you find these podcasts educational and entertaining. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC.